Morning. Happy New Year. Anybody make any New Year's resolutions? How many? Raise your hand if you made one. Wow, it's going out of style. Nobody's making resolutions anymore. It's good to see uh, all of you here today. I see some new faces uh, in the audience, and we're just happy to have you here at Coast. Hope you uh, feel warmly welcomed here in our uh, church family. You know, I was, uh, I was browsing the internet this week, looking for, uh, looking for some humor, actually, and I, I think I found some. I want to share some things here with you. I was looking in particular for, uh, for some funny-looking road signs, road signs that would uh, cause people to laugh a little bit, and let's, let's see if they do the trick. I'm not sure that they will, but we'll find out. First, motorcycles, use extreme caution. Now think about that. Read it again. Catch the uh, double meaning there. You could read it, motorcycles use extreme caution. Or, motorcycles use extreme caution. Now, I'm not sure that can be said of uh, Terrell Clark and David Squawfield and others who ride motorcycles in here, but, you know, maybe, maybe they do. How about the next one? Caution, live children playing. <laughs> All right. As opposed to what other kinds of children that might be playing in the street. Next one. Caution, do not drink this water. Okay. I was, uh, I was a little confused on this one. I'm not sure that the sign's necessary, but perhaps it is. Maybe not. Not sure. And my personal favorite, let's see if you can read this one. Uh, caution, water on road during rain. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Tax, your taxpayer dollars at work right there, folks. What do all these signs have in common? They make note of danger. They make note of, 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 of caution that we are to take in life. We're to watch out for the motorcyclist. Or we're, we're to watch out for the kids. Or watch out for the water on the road when it rains. Danger, danger, watch out. All these, uh, all these road signs remind us that we need to exercise caution, exercise care. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus is going to be doing the same thing. In Mark 13, Jesus is going to turn to His disciples and He's going to say, Caution! Danger! Watch out! Because something big is about to happen. The title of my message today, beginning of a series actually, entitled The Prophecy of Mark 13. And part one is entitled Doom for the Temple, Danger for the Disciples. Doom for the Temple, Danger for the Disciples. Uh, for those of you just joining us, we are continuing on in a series in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, I'm happy to be back in it. Uh, we're we're going to be going through all of chapter 13 in the month of January. And just so you know, chapter 13, which is known more commonly as the Olivet Discourse, because it was spoken by Jesus from the Mount of Olives, just next to the city of Jerusalem. And uh, this chapter, chapter 13 in Mark, and uh, its parallels in Matthew and Luke, are perhaps some of the most striking and most difficult teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Most difficult to understand. But you know, there's some clues that can help us as we approach Mark 13. There are some clues that can get us ready for it. And those clues all happened in the previous two chapters. And so just for a couple minutes, I want to remind you of where we've come. Because it's been, been some time since we've been back in the Gospel of Mark. And I want to look back at chapters 11 and 12 just for one moment. And these will give us clues into what we're going to see in Mark 13. Do you remember Mark 11? Mark 11, verse 1, Jesus entered Jerusalem. Mark 11, verse 1. The triumphal entry. Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus enters Jerusalem to the shouts of the crowd. And the first thing that He does, the first thing that He does, is He enters the temple. 
He enters the city of Jerusalem. He walks into the temple. And in verse 15, one of the, one of the most striking stories in all of Scripture, Jesus overturns the temple tables. He overturns the money tables. The tables where people were exchanging currency for, for sacrificial items and changing one coin for another so that they could use the appropriate coin for the temple tax. Jesus looked upon the temple and He, and he, he didn't recognize it. He said, this isn't my house. This isn't my Father's house. This is a place of great corruption. And so when Jesus entered the scene in Mark 11 in Jerusalem, the first thing He did was overturn the tables of the temple. He cleansed the temple. Soon thereafter, because of His defiant act, we find in verse 28 and following, many, many Jewish leaders coming up to Jesus saying, Who are you? Who are you to do this? By whose authority are you doing this? Scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, the whole gamut of Israel's religious leadership, their religious aristocracy, had came forward, come forward to Jesus and said, by whose authority are you doing these things? You have no right. Mark 12, we see Jesus' incessant confrontations with, with each of these groups, with scribes, with Pharisees, with Sadducees. We see in Mark 12 incessant dialogue between Jesus and the religious elite going back and forth trying to determine who has a higher level of authority. Who can command the other? At the onset of Mark 12, Jesus gives a parable. A parable that likens God to a vineyard owner and Israel and her religious leaders to the tenants of the vineyard. And in that parable in Mark 12, Jesus speaks of God, the vineyard owner, coming back to His vineyard, sending messengers to His vineyard, sending emissaries, saying, bring me back some of the fruit from My vineyard. But the wicked tenants, Israel's religious elites, weren't bearing fruit in the vineyard. They weren't bearing fruit in the temple. And finally, God, the vineyard owner, sent His Son. And what did they do to the Son? They killed Him. A picture. Mark 12. A picture of what was about to occur in Mark 13. The end of Mark 12, it ends with Jesus speaking about how Israel's leaders had exploited and manipulated their Jewish countrymen. They were defrauding and devouring even poor Jewish widows. We see in the, at the last story in Mark 12, we see a widow coming up and putting two mites into the temple treasury. And Jesus points it out and says, look at that woman. She gave all that she had. What great faith. And yet, by implication, as Jesus is watching her put in all that she had, Jesus and the disciples are reminded that the temple elites are squandering the tithes, the gifts, the donations of the people. They are, according to verse 40 of chapter 12, devouring widows' houses. It is with this backdrop it is with this history in chapters 11 and 12 talking about temple, temple, temple that we approach Mark 13. Verse 1 says this. Verse 1. Then as He, Jesus, went out of the temple, one of His disciples said to Him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Having entered Jerusalem just a couple days prior, Jesus now leaves the temple 
having encountered a vast array of corruption, the temple looks nothing like the house of Yahweh. The priests look nothing like Yahweh's representatives. Greed and pride had replaced holiness and humility. But the disciples weren't as discerning as Jesus was. Despite their growing awareness of Jesus' disdain for the temple authorities, the temple was to them like Disneyland is to a child. When they walked into the temple, all the disciples could see was glory. Didn't matter if the fast food wasn't any good. Didn't matter if there were long lines. When they walked into the temple, when the kids walk into Disneyland, all they see is glory. The disciples were blinded by the great stones. Whoa, look at these stones! Glistening white, immense, twice the size of a man. Twice the size of a man. The buildings, look at these buildings, Jesus. Ornate, immense. Jesus, look, the temple, its compound, it covers one-sixth of the city. Amazing. When the first century Jew looked at the temple, one of the most common emotions he or she felt was pride. Yet as the old adage goes, pride comes before the fall. Jesus predicts in verse 2 that the temple is going to be destroyed. And this prediction is grounded in the historical story of Israel. Because you see, the temple prior to it, Solomon's temple had also been destroyed. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 24 speaks of that. Take a look at what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel prophesying about the coming destruction of Solomon's temple at the hands of the Babylonians. He says, Speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, your arrogant boast, the desire of your eyes, the desire of your soul, and your sons and daughters whom you have left behind shall fall by the sword. Did you notice your arrogant boast? The desire of your eyes? The delight of your soul? Sounds a whole lot like what manner of stones, what buildings are here. The Jews of Jesus' day were not unlike the Jews of Jeremiah and Ezekiel's day. They looked upon their temple and they thought, it's my house right there. That's my pride and joy. Do we fall victim to that? Uh, do, we, uh, do we have a home that we take undue pride in? Do we have a, a, a place of employment, a job that we think, yeah, look at that. Look how glorious that is right there, my position. What do we take pride in? The people of Jesus' day were looking at the house of God and saying, look at that. That's my temple right there. That's my place. Verse 2 again. Jesus answered and said to them, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone, not one stone, shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now we'll get to how the Jews would have heard that prediction in just a moment. But first I just want to say this. Jesus' prophecy in verse 2, it came true. It came true. In 70 A.D., the soon-to-be Roman emperor, uh, Emperor Vespasian and his son Titus, at the then request of the Caesar, they had entered into the area of Jerusalem because there was a Jewish revolt uprising in 66 A.D. And from 66 A.D. to 70 A.D., the Romans and the Jews were fighting against one another. There was great conflict between these two nations. Rome being the great foreign power and and Israel being the the, the small vassal state. 
And from 66 to 70 A.D., these powers fought against one another. And by 70 A.D., Vespasian, by then the emperor, and his son, Titus, General Titus, decimated Jerusalem. They tore down the city. They burned it. It was razed to the ground. The temple itself, according to historians, was burned. Not 40 years after Jesus makes His prediction, the temple was destroyed. Should give us some pretty good confidence in the Scriptures. As tradition has it, the gold, the gold in the temple treasury, while the temple was burning, melted down and lodged between the cracks of the great stones. The Romans, becoming aware of this, After the temple had been burned, the city raised to the ground. When everything cooled and the gold seeped between the cracks of the stones, the Romans dismantled the temple stone by stone by stone to get the gold. Not one stone shall be left on another. Jesus' prediction came true. Mark 13.2 is a fulfilled prophecy. But briefly, I also want to consider how the Jews would have heard this prophecy 40 years prior to its destruction. When Jesus said, this temple is going to be destroyed, how would they have heard this prophecy? Now, specifically in Mark 13.2, Jesus is speaking to the disciples but it didn't remain, the, the, the words, the, the content of this prophecy didn't remain in their keeping, in their guardianship. It got out. Others heard of this. In fact, uh, John 2.19 indicates that Jesus somewhat seemed to suggest it, but notice a chapter later in Mark 14, what one of the accusations was against Jesus as he was put on trial before Rome. This is what one of the accusers said of Jesus Christ. They said this, And some rose up and bore false witness against Christ, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. This accusation stems from John 2.19, a passage in which Jesus does say he will rebuild the temple. But of course, in John 2.19, he wasn't speaking of the Jerusalem temple. He was speaking of the temple of his body. Tear down this temple, he said, and in three days I will raise it up. Nevertheless, Mark 14.57 shows us quite clearly that the Jews of Jesus' day did not understand him to mean the temple of his body. They understood Him to mean the Jerusalem temple. And so they heard when Jesus says, tear down this temple and I'll raise it up in three days, what they heard was, this man, this man is claiming the destruction of our temple. This man is claiming the destruction of our temple. And such talk, such talk of temple destruction, such talk of belittling the magnificence of the temple, that he could raise it in three days. What? Don't you know this has taken over 40 years just to remodel? How could you raise it in three days? This talk of temple destruction, this talk of belittling the temple, was tantamount to treason in the the ears of a Jew. The Jerusalem temple was the symbol of Israel's God, their religion, and their pride. This talk was talk of treason. And as Jesus spoke these words in Mark 13.2, you can be sure that as He spoke them to His disciples, Jesus knew full well that that talk would warrant him a death sentence. Hence, the accusation. Jesus' words in Mark 13, 2 were a deadly prediction. 
when such words found their way to the ears of the Jewish aristocracy, all they could think of was this man is digging his own grave. And the disciples, well, they were perplexed too. They were perplexed too. But not as much as perhaps the rest of Israel. Because by this time, they had grown accustomed to multiple episodes in Jesus' prior teaching in which He made astounding statements. Statements about judgment upon Israel's elite. Statements about His own death and resurrection. And these things were flying through their heads, and now they're hearing another statement, a statement about the destruction of the temple. And they're trying to make sense of it all. Okay, judgment on Israel. Uh, you're dying and rising again. That you're predicting the temple destruction. How, how do we put this all together, Jesus? And as with all of Jesus' teaching, they want to know more. And so the four of them, four of them, Peter, James, uh, John, and Andrew, come up and ask Jesus for more information. Take a look at verse 3. Now, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, overlooking the temple, we should say. He's looking somewhat down upon it. As Jesus, as He sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked Him privately, Tell us, Jesus, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Their minds start racing. When? When will the temple be destroyed? Will any other signs or events signal its destruction? Will the temple's destruction mark the beginning of the kingdom? Or are these separate events altogether? When? What? Show us. Mark puts it, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? I emphasize greatly in Mark 13.4 that the mention of these things, notice the plural, these things, is significant. It is not merely the destruction of the temple that catches the attention of the disciples. If it were, this would be in the singular. When will this event occur, Jesus? When will the destruction of the temple occur? We should expect it if, it's just, if they're just concerned, if the disciples are only concerned, merely concerned, with the timing of the temple's destruction, we would see this statement, this question in the singular, but we don't see that in Mark, we don't see that in Matthew, and we don't see that in Luke. Some Bible versions put it in the singular as a stylistic change. That's incorrect. No, man, no biblical manuscript has it in the singular. And so if your Bible says, when will this thing be? You can change that to the plural. Because no manuscript says otherwise. It's these things. When will these things be? It is not merely the destruction of the temple that catches their attention. It is the sum. It is the sum of all of Jesus' teachings about temple, kingdom, death, resurrection, and future coming in glory. Swirling around in their heads, trying to make sense of it all. And so they ask, when? When will all these things happen? And what? What sign will precede all of these things? Beginning at Mark 13.5 and continuing to the end of the chapter, Jesus responds to the questions of the disciples. And His response is going to be twofold. On the one hand, Jesus is going to answer their question. In Mark 13, Jesus is going to speak of multiple indicators, multiple indicators, that would help the disciples, by, that would help the disciples understand when these things were about to occur. And thus, by implication, the rest of us. These things including the temple, the coming of the kingdom, etc. On the other hand, Jesus is going to avoid their question. In much of Mark 13, Jesus is going to spend a great deal of time not answering their question. And instead, preparing the disciples and by implication the rest of us for what would lie ahead for followers of Jesus Christ. And so we might say that Mark 13 is as much... Jesus' attempt to redirect the disciples' focus as it is to instruct them 
of end time events. Jesus wants them and us to be prepared for persecution and not merely satisfied with knowledge of the last days. And so as we continue in Mark, keep this in mind. On the one hand, he'll answer the question. On the other hand, he will redirect the question. And today, in our study today, he's spending much time in redirection. Verse 5, Jesus begins to respond. It says, and Jesus. You might call it, you might say, but Jesus. There's a day there in Greek, and it could be and or but, but it seems to be better translated as, as but, because Jesus is actually redirecting their focus. So I'm going to say, but Jesus, answering them, began to say, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. Commenting on this passage, uh, a Messianic Jewish scholar, that means a, a, a national ethnic Jew who is also a believer in Jesus as Messiah, a Messianic Jewish scholar, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, says this about verses 5, 6, and 7. He says this, He says, Jesus wanted to make sure that the disciples would not jump to certain conclusions because of various events. And so he first answered the question negatively, telling them of things that would not mean that the end has begun. Remember, the disciples are saying, when? When are all these things going to happen in the temple, the kingdom? When is it coming? And Jesus begins in 5, 6, 7, and also 8 to say, here's when not. Here's when it won't happen. Here's when its coming is yet delayed. And he says three things. Jesus gives three reasons that the end is not yet. Three reasons that the end is not yet. First, he says, there'll be false messiahs. There'll be false messiahs. In verse Five, he says, Take heed that no one deceives you. Verse 6, For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. You know, there's stories in the first century of multiple instances of Jewish leaders claiming to be Messiah after even the death of Christ. Multiple instances. Have you ever heard of a false Messiah in, in today's terminology? I know I have. There have been many in our day and age who claim to be some kind of Messiah or Savior. Jesus says the end is not yet when you see these kinds of people. Secondly, there will be mass deception. He says, take heed that no one deceives you. He says, when the false Messiahs come, they will deceive many. Many. There will be mass deception. Many people will come to follow false teachers, false saviors. Third, there will be wars and rumors of wars. Verse 7, But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen. Must. Uh, Day in Greek, meaning it is necessary. It is destined. These things must happen. Wars, rumors of wars. And the end is not yet. Let's go to verse 8. Verse 8. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines and troubles. And these are the beginnings of sorrows. The beginnings of sorrows, Jesus says. Let's add to our list. The end is not yet. And now we see the phrase, the beginnings of sorrows. We see that Jesus indicates that large or or maybe world wars indicate that it's only the beginning of sorrows. Um, And I really want to hesitate on the idea that it's world wars that are spoken of in verse 8. It does say nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom. But if you take a look at uh, Isaiah 19, verse 2, the phrase kingdom against kingdom is used of civil war. And so, uh, civil war within Egypt, as a matter of fact. So it's not necessarily the case that verse 8 refers to world wars. 
You know, so many, when World War I came, 1914, so many Christians were saying, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, it's, 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 it's happening. Biblical data is a little bit suspect there. It's unclear whether this means world war or perhaps large wars. In any event, it largely doesn't matter because he says hey, the, the wars, they're the beginnings of sorrows. Not the end of it, the beginnings of it. So whatever significance you attach to World War I and World War II with respect to the end, it's only the beginning. Secondly, earthquakes. We've seen many of those. Third, famines. Many of those. Yet these are the beginnings, the beginnings of sorrows. That word sorrows there is also can also be translated birth pangs. In other words, these the, this is the beginning of labor. This is the beginning of a woman in labor. A phrase often used to suffering that was coming upon Israel in the Old Testament. Birth pangs are coming. Labor is coming. Thus far in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, we see clearly that Jesus is initially concerned, initially concerned with redirecting the disciples' focus. Redirecting it away from detailed knowledge of the timing and the sequence of end time events. Thus far, He's told them precisely what events should not cause them to get all excited. And as in our day, uh, it's very likely that many in Jesus' day were unduly concerned with pinpointing the exact moment of prophetic events. Uh, you know, I, I know you have friends and, and, and relatives and, and others who uh, maybe they're, they're kind of like your, your prophecy friend, you know. They're always pointing to the newspaper and they're saying, look what just happened over there. Man, can you, can you believe what just happened in the Middle East? Did you see what Russia did the other day? Gog and Magog. Um, scholars use the phrase uh, newspaper exegesis. And what that means is that these are the kinds of folks who look at the newspaper to make exegesis interpretation. Rather than looking at the Word and carefully looking at the Word first before opening up our newspapers. Ben Witherington writes, Mark 13 is Jesus' take on the conflicting eschatological interpretations of His time. And more importantly, His giving His disciples the clues they need to sort out their own false expectations and assumptions from true ones. See the guy there reading his newspaper. We want to avoid that. We want to be careful to pick up the Word of God first and the newspaper second. The disciples, like many in Jesus' day, like many in our day, were getting really excited about the end. And Jesus initially, initially, is stifling that. He's squashing that a bit and saying, hold your horses. A lot of things are going to happen yet. Wars, famines, earthquakes, false messiahs. A lot of things are going to happen yet. Verses 5 through 8, Jesus tells the disciples what does not constitute a sign of the end. Now, in verses 9 through 13, Jesus goes on to instruct them that preparation, preparation for the end, is just as important as knowledge of it. Take a look at verse 9. He says, But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them, or for a testimony against them, perhaps. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, don't worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit.
Can I summarize this with my own paraphrase? Drop your Bible for a moment. This, this, this is what Jesus is saying in 9, 10, 11, and 12. He says, don't concern yourself with knowing times and signs of the end. For you can't control wars or earthquakes or famines. And these things aren't even indicators that the end is near. How much less will you be able to control the even greater signs that will precede the last days? So instead, you concern yourself with what you can control, namely your own conduct. Make no mistake, my prediction of the temple's destruction will not be taken lightly, either by Jew or by Roman authority. And your association with me and my words put you in the same predicament that I am in. Persecution is coming for all of us. So be on your toes as you continue to take my gospel to the nations. Jesus wants them to focus on what they can control, not what they can't control. And what they can control, what they are able to control, is their own conduct, is their own actions, is their own response in the wake of the last days. I want to ask the question, what awaits the disciples for their association to Jesus and His prediction of temple destruction? What awaits the disciples for their association to Jesus and His prediction of temple destruction? Jesus says, you're going to be arrested. He says you're going to face court trials. He says you're going to be beaten. You know, so often we, uh, we go through tough times and, uh, <clears throat> and we, uh, we want to give up, right? You go through a tough travail in life, um, fight with a spouse, uh, struggles at work, um, trying to pay your bills and or what, whatever it is, and you just you're at the point where you're like, oh, I just I can't handle this anymore. Can't handle this anymore. I just I just want to give up. Your your spirit is 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 weakened. Uh, you, you you just you don't want to continue on. Well, what if you were told? a couple months prior, that this day would come? What if you were told in one month you're going to have a devastating fight with your spouse? In one month you're going to have a tremendous financial crisis. In a few weeks you're going to experience a problem that's going to just blow your mind. What if you had knowledge in advance of something that was going to occur? Now when that predicament occurred, when that fight occurred, when that problem occurred, all of a sudden, with knowledge of it from the past, your spirit would not be nearly as shaken. Your hope would not be nearly as dashed. In fact, you'd look upon the one who had made the prediction and you'd think, how did you know? Amazing. Fantastic. You told me what would happen and it did and, and now I'm ready for it. That's what's happening here. Jesus is saying, you are going to be arrested. You're going to go before courts, both Jewish and Roman. You're going to be beaten in the synagogues. But I'm telling you this so that when it happens, you will not lose hope. But instead, you will have your faith in Me bolstered. Reinvigorated. That when they put handcuffs on you, that when they beat you 40 lashes minus one, with each whip, you will think to yourself, my Lord said this would happen. How much stronger is my faith now? Is Jesus answering their question thus far? No. Now He's redirecting their focus. But on so many levels, with His foretelling, of what they are about to experience on so many levels, 
by not answering their question initially, Jesus is helping his disciples prepare for the end. He wanted them ready to testify of Jesus the Messiah even in the midst of hostile Jewish councils and mocking Roman rulers. The persecution of the disciples would serve to enhance enhance their ability to preach the gospel to all the nations, verse 10. For they would only gain the ear of some dignitaries if they were wrongfully arrested and forced to testify in their own defense. Jesus says, your arrest, your court trials, they will be opportunities to preach to the nations. Because you won't be able to gain the ear of dignitaries without them. And notice verse 11. Notice this carefully. Verse 11, but when they arrest you and deliver you up, don't worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. One scholar took great note of verse 11 and said that this, this one verse was perhaps the most significant verse to Mark's readers. Mark wrote in the late 60s A.D., prior to the destruction of the temple. And he was writing to Roman Christians who were experiencing the persecutions of Emperor Nero. Emperor Nero did untold things to Christians and believing Jews. He, uh, he, was, he was horrible. We can't even speak of some of the things he would do to the Christians, to those who name the name of Christ. And Mark says to his audience, in chapter 13, verse 11, he says, when you're arrested, you meager follower of Christ, you who have no eloquence of speech, you who are just a peasant or a farmer or, or whatnot, don't worry about going before the dignitaries. Because the Holy Spirit of God will speak through you. Don't fear. He will be there to comfort you, to help you through this ordeal. And friends, uh, let's, I, I just want to emphasize, let's not suppose this doesn't happen today. Christians are in court even now as I speak. They are. In fact, I would argue that uh, one-third approximately of the, of the nations of this world um, Approximately one-third of the nations of this world, uh, it's illegal to be a Christian. Or it's illegal to convert to Christianity. And if you do, you are brought before a judge. And your family is brought before a judge. The Holy Spirit is with them. He is speaking through them. He is comforting them. He is aiding them in their time of need. I encourage you to check out uh, organizations like Voice of the Martyrs. Um, they, uh, they devote their entire ministry to identifying Christians who are suffering and, uh, and making it known to the world, making it known to our president, making it known to world leaders to put pressure on these nations and release Christians who are wrongfully arrested. Verse 12, we finish up. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Jesus, we conclude our section in Mark 13 today. I want to finish up with what awaits the disciples for their association to Jesus and His prediction of temple destruction. We already said that arrests await them, court trials await them, beating in the synagogues await them. And by the way, just as an aside, the beatings there, uh, beatings in the synagogue was a significant phrase. What that meant was those Christians desired to still affiliate with their Jewish synagogues. What that means is, is that those, Christian, those, those Jews who named the name of Christ as Messiah were so fervent, were so uh, passionate that their, that their friends and countrymen come to know Christ as Messiah that they wanted to stay 
in their synagogues and were willing to incur 40 lashes minus one just to be there and to walk others through Scriptures and to say, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. They were willing to stay in the midst of persecution. Four. Verse 12 and 13 indicate there will be family betrayals. Um, Brother against brother. Father against child. Child against parent. Five. Hated by all. And six. Death. Doom for the temple. Danger for the disciples. The end of verse 13 says, But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Peculiar statement, no doubt. I've uh, got to keep it in context, of course. A lot of people like to pull this phrase out of context and try to make it mean something that it, that it doesn't. Um, to be clear, nowhere in verse 13 are we to assume that Jesus is suggesting eternal salvation by means of perseverance. He's not suggesting eternal salvation by means of perseverance. In fact, the meaning of the word saved in verse 13 is not unlike what we see earlier in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 8, verse 35, Jesus says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. The Greek word sozo, as I've said on many occasions, has a variety of meanings. It can mean eternal salvation, but it can also mean healed, it can mean delivered, And in this case, I would argue, it can mean vindicated. Vindicated. He who endures to the end shall be vindicated. Arrest, trials, beatings, betrayals, hatred, death. It's worth it. It's worth it, Jesus says. Endure through this. Strive with Me. And you will be vindicated. Don't try to save your life. You'll lose it if you do that. Instead, lose your life. Give it up for my sake, for the Gospels. And when you do, you will be vindicated. God will bring to rights all those who have opposed you. And you will be rewarded on the last day. Jim Elliott was a missionary to Ecuador um, he studied at Camp Wycliffe, which is a, at that time and still is a, a place where people learn to uh, study a new language and literally you know, translate the Bible into that new language, Wycliffe Bible Translators. And Jim Elliott, uh, he died in the field. He was a missionary uh, to the Aka Indians and the Wyodani people. And in his attempts to reach and to evangelize them, uh, as the movie The End of the Spear beautifully, beautifully represents um, that story. He, he, and his, uh, he and some of his um, comrades were, were slain by, by natives in Ecuador. Slain by the very people he was trying to reach. But prior to his death, years prior to his death, Jim Elliott wrote in a journal on October 28, 1949, and he said this. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You cannot keep your life. You cannot lose everlasting life. The summary, uh, summary statement for Mark 13:1 through 13, our part one of this series. I want to say this: the temple, while glorious, glorious on the outside, has been perverted and no longer represents Yahweh. Its purpose has been compromised, and thus Jesus predicts its destruction. The disciples asked Jesus to give them more detailed information about this prediction and its correlation with Jesus' other teaching about the kingdom. But Jesus initially, initially is the key word, stifles their curiosity to know of times, dates, and signs, and instead emphasizes how important it is for them to be prepared 
for all manners of persecutions that they will experience due to their association with Christ. How can we apply this passage today? Number one, be careful to let Scripture guide your understanding of any supposed prophetic significance in current events. Don't be a newspaper exegete. That's rule one. The disciples were leaning toward that according to their question in verse four. Two, the zeal, the zeal we have for knowledge of the times and signs of prophetic events must be coupled with preparation to be good witnesses of Christ when persecution comes. And it is coming. Three, salvation vindication is promised to the one who endures coming persecution. Salvation vindication is promised. He who endures to the end shall be saved. This is the beginning of Mark 13. We're about to enter uh, some uh, difficult territory beginning at verse 14. So I encourage you to pray with me. Approach this text humbly and carefully. May we recognize that uh, in all of this, the main hope is that we would be prepared in the face of persecution. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the teachings of Jesus Christ, Your Son. Mark 13, Lord, is precious, precious teaching. Father, we, it's, it's difficult teaching. We ask Your help as we continue through this chapter in the month of January. Pray, Lord, that Your Spirit would be with us. And guide us and show us how to interpret this text. Father, the end is not yet. It's coming. The beginnings of sorrows are, may, are yet here. But Lord, there still awaits those last days. We ask that You would help us be, to be prepared, to be ready for when those days and when those persecutions come. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.